How's life? What's been going on? You know, ups and downs. With COVID, I mean, I you know, things are different. But I started a new job three months ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, pro- programming, and cool. I love it. It's great. Great. Yeah, it's awesome. How about you? I mean, are you uh, you writing still? Are you doing your book? Uh, still working on it. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of projects. I mean, you caught that episode. I think part part of what made me kind of feel down is that I just kept adding on new projects and new projects. But the the short answer is yes, I'm still working on my book. Uh, that's the main thing I'm working on right now. And um, yeah, start a new business. Yeah. Uh, you're going to be a dad, right? That's, that's the big thing. Yeah. Okay. That's a yeah. big thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very excited. I know back in the day we spoke about, well, you've, you've had kids, but the idea of kids, uh, I think I've asked you about that before. So anyway, yeah, here it is. Yeah. I mean, I reflect a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm introspective, but my, my kids are six and four now. And, um, it is a, one of my friends once told me having, having kids is like winning the lottery and getting paid a penny at a time. <laughs> and, uh, I think about that from time to time. It's cause it's hard. It sucks actually for probably four years. It's really, it's, it's not, it's not a good time. It's just mm-hmm. not, it's a, it's a very, very hard time. And if you're interested in being married it's even harder um but i i mean now that i'm more or less out of the the real hell um you know it's just the daily it's a family we're a family it's it's really truly a family um but i do introspect about it a lot you know mm-hmm. what made the first four years hell i mean there's a few things i it's probably a confluence of all of them I can only speak from, from my own perspective, but I mean, this is more or less validated by people who I'm friends with who are parents and most of them are married, but, um, you're a child until you have children Mm -hmm. and growing up, you're, you're forced, you're forced to mature. And, um, you know, I imagine that some people probably do mature before they have children and it probably isn't as difficult that wasn't the case for me. And I, I'm guessing that probably the younger you are, the harder it is, <clears throat> but you're forced to mature. And especially if you take it seriously. Um, and that is very painful because you're confronted with your own immaturity and you're also um, attempting to navigate in, in situations that occur naturally. So you are immature. You know you're immature. In my case, I was um, frustrated with my immaturity. And um, what makes it painful or what made, made it painful for me was that I would respond, and I still do in many cases, I would respond to my children's immaturity with immaturity. And um, when, it, when it's painful is when you have the authority as a parent to enforce whatever you're attempting to enforce um, and you do it immaturely. Um, I, I, I have experienced profound regret um, over some of the ways that I've enforced, um, you know, rules and, and uh, structure uh, immaturely. So I think that's probably the biggest part, but it's also really, really hard because um, the romantic relationship seriously suffers. It just does. And um, there's a guy, actually a guy, David Schnark. Have you ever heard of him? No. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. He writes about, um, he, he's actually a, a practicing uh, clinical psychiatrist and he will um, counsel couples on, um, I don't know what he calls it, but it's basically sex. Um, and he calls it a crucible, which I think is a very appropriate term. Um, it requires a certain degree of um, it requires you to look outside, like a meta narrative, mainly, mm-hmm. where 
um, you, at least in my case, I can see, okay, this is, this is the timeline of my life, say. And um, this period of, of purging, purgation, that he would call a crucible, suffering, um, he thinks is actually really beneficial to a long-term romantic relationship. Um, but it's, it's hard. And it's hard for the same reasons that it's hard with children. You're immature. You're forced to mature. You're not sleeping, especially at the beginning. And um, differences in expectations become manifest and in many cases untenable. Where I had expectations about how my children would behave or what, what, what we would expect as parents. And she had different expectations. And um, I would handle disagreements petulantly. Hmm. Uh, and she would too. So, I mean, part of it's probably personal, but I think <clears throat> a lot of it is, is not. A lot of it's probably pretty common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about this. Uh, yeah, the 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 quick growing up thing is, um, you know, and I've obviously had children yet. So this is all just my thoughts about things. Um, the idea that biologically, at our age, our early 30s, we're basically meant to be grandfathers, right? Like if we were free of current society, if we were Paleolithic men, uh, we probably have grandchildren by now. We probably would have had kids at 15, etc. And I guess that kind of growing up would have done, would have happened sooner because maybe most of us would have been dead by 40, for instance. So I was wondering, I mean, this is switching into like philosophical mode, but what do, what do you think about that idea? We're not supposed to be kids at 26 or whatever. Well, I'm glad you brought that up um, because this is actually, I mean, this is actually part of the, you've heard me uh, <clears throat> refer to Wittgenstein a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, he has a term called a language game, which is um, basically attempting to communicate an, an idea, a meaning, some meaning that you have. And you're using different symbols to do that. Language, different languages, um, connotations, words, that kind of thing. And this is the one thing that's hardest for me to enter into your language game because you talk about. Um, evolutionary biology so often and i don't primarily relate to the world through that lens and i don't i I think it's probably i think it probably is a language game i just don't play that language game and you do but i can tell from your spirit what i call spirit that you know you mean basically the same thing um i think it is true that biologically what you say is the case um but i mean like augustine um who wrote i don't know the fourth century maybe um he and and the romans had terms for this like senescence if you've heard the term senescence Mm-hmm. which is like o- old age, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a pe- they, they, had, they had terms for periods of life. Um, uh, adolescence, that's one that I know you've heard of. The, these periods of, of life. And um, I don't necessarily think that they are entirely biological. They may be um, edified. By biological impulse, but I think we're primarily not biological. I mean, I think our primary mode of existence is ontological, especially as humans. Um, and if that's the case, then you know, maturation takes on different forms of meaning because one way that you could mature is by um growing in time biologically right you know mm-hmm. uh, 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 an apple matures a tree matures biologically right but um 
generally what we mean by maturity and what I mean by using the term in relation to my kids is that there is some kind of psychological or, or spiritual or metaphysical maturation that takes place. And um, because I think that we're primarily ontological, I don't necessarily think that you, you can use the, mo- the biological mode of space-time when you're describing this. So obviously maturation implies time mm. because you're passing, you're passing through time. But, um, yeah, I'd agree with you except for the reproductive part. Cause like, I mean, um, like I have a lot of female friends who are in their late thirties and they, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but like, uh, you know, they follow the feminist consumerist paradigm of like focus on your career first. And they're all freaking out. Some of them have come to terms with the fact, well, they missed their window to have a baby easily or at all. All right. Or, or they're, you know, they're having trouble conceiving at 38 or something, which is, you know, yeah. I mean, our bodies haven't evolved to match the way that we grow up in society. And then with guys, men have a little bit more flexibility, but then I think, you know, if we were expecting to die at 45, everything would happen sooner. And Maybe, maybe society's gone a little bit too far in letting people grow up later. What do you think that any amount? Do you think that there's a certain element of um, social habituation or formation that contributes to? Because in the past, when life expectancy was what it was. And because um, women were mostly expected to bear children, that the social pretense that surrounded them contributed to their idea of what they expected to receive from their life. Mm -hmm. And that is the case as well now. And we're just changed because life expectancy has increased. it sounds like what you're saying is there's somewhat of a tension. And I, I, I think there is, I mean, I, I would say there is a tension between um, the biological fact, our inherited social expectations and a new, a new reality where people are living, especially since the 20th century, far, far, far longer mm-hmm. than they, they ever have. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining, like, let's say life expectancy goes up to like 300 or 1,000 or something, but our reproductive organs still only work on the schedule that they work now, like menopause happens when it happens, whatever. I would think if that was the case, people would have children really young, get it out of the way because most of your life is as a non-fertile, uh, was it senescence? Senescence is most of your life. We're not having kids. Like you would have kids as a kid and then move on. Uh, and I've even thought like, you know, like in China, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but in China for a while until I think this generation, it was normal to have kids young and then your kids were raised by your parents who were then retired. Like all of my Chinese yeah. friends who are my age, they were raised by their grandparents. They barely saw their parents because their parents were young working on their careers. Like that, I mean, that kind of interdependence seems more natural and has less biological tension, I think. Yeah, my dad was um, primarily raised by his grandfather. I mean, I, I don't want to say raised, but his father worked on the railroad and he was gone for weeks at a time. And his main paternal figure was his grandfather, who was alive when I was alive. And um, he remembers him with profound affection. Um, and my dad is not a, he's a, typical you know he's a typical product of the 50s he is not very he doesn't communicate effectively with family um and he doesn't really generally express that kind of tenderness but you know my dad and i have a very good relationship and you know he has talked to me about 
what it was like having his grandfather as his paternal figure. The sorts of expectations that he had. He was a plumber. My dad would, you know, do jobs for him. And um, he, 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 from what I have gathered, he seemed like a demanding but fair man. Uh, he didn't extend praise very often. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably... I'm interested in um, especially after having been exposed to neo-masculinity or the red pill. Um, I'm interested in both things, but I will always ultimately relate to things spiritually um, through the figure of Christ. And um, you know, I mean, there. Well, I mean, when Jesus was talking to um, the disciples about eunuchs, he said, "You know, some some were born eunuchs, some were made eunuchs for the empire, basically, and some will become eunuchs for the kingdom of God." And so, I think, um, I, I actually think that celibacy as an idea is interesting. And I think it probably bears upon the, the, the topic that you and I are discussing because celibacy isn't necessarily beneficial to the tribe. I guess, you know, insofar as maybe a medicine man would be celibate so that he could dedicate himself to the matters of the tribe. Um, maybe the tribe would benefit, but I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, well, I'm thinking, hold on, I have to yell at my dogs. Okay, they stopped. Um, I'm thinking, uh, I, I think this is in uh, Sapiens, like Noah Harari's book. It's like, um, or maybe Selfish Gene, I might be mixing up. I read them at the same time, but he had this idea that, there's a whole idea of memes and like celibacy in say the Catholic church doesn't promote genes like it actually doesn't make sense from a genetic standpoint because any man who's celibate isn't going to have children obviously um but it is promoting the meme of of that belief in celibacy whatever religious beliefs are attached to it so that's why that idea has propagated right not through genetics but through through minds so i mean this is not maybe not what you're asking but um that's what came to mind like that's why the meme of celibacy has passed on, not through the body. Though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in my own experience, um, I went through a period of of um, real trial, I would say, where um, you know I was confronted with a lot of these ideas, um, and it was basically juxtaposed against my own biological reality. You know my desire to have sex, um, <clears throat> my desire to have a family, to be a father and a husband. Um, and, you know, some of my own spiritual experiences where, um, I guess maybe I was confronted with mortality in different ways because you can be confronted with mortality in maybe the Vedic way where um, like that uh, video that I sent you, Adyashanti, mm -hmm. um, recalling that Zen koan where the guy is hanging from the tree by his teeth. And, um, you know, ultimately he, he is the, the point of the koan is, to bring to your attention the fact that you will die no matter what you do you will die um yeah. but that's just people know what we're talking about just to fill in the story guys holding on to the branch from his teeth a sage come by comes by and says say the one thing that'll save your life and yeah the 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 conclusion is what you said like there's nothing you can do to save his life so he might as well accept it and yeah and um yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a beautiful parable. Um, it's so rich 
but um, that's a very different way of confronting mortality than when I look at my son and I realize there's a, you know, 20, however many year gap between us. And I see myself in him and I, I see the, the, the rhythms and patterns of life ebbing and flowing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it probably is in some ways probably more visceral for a woman to your point yeah. because she, she, she is trapped in some, in some ways by the biological reality. Um, maybe she won't experience it as a trap, I, I guess, but you know, from a young age, women have a relation to rhythms and patterns and cycles that men just don't and never will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Hans, can you, can you hold on one sec? Yeah, there's a stray dog in the yard. Yeah, go for it. Hey, sorry about that. <laughs> there's all these wild dogs in this area. Didn't want my puppies to get eaten. Are they roaming about regularly or has it happened more recently? Um, uh, they're just That's just where they are. We're, we're in this other town for the month. We've been kind of traveling around. Um, so yeah, we rented this, uh, house kind of in the mountains, but yeah. How's Thailand these days? Uh, good. Yeah. I mean, as far as like COVID stuff, there's this kind of people wear masks was otherwise non-existent. It doesn't affect my life much, I should say. Yeah. That's interesting. I, uh, I live in a rural, a rural part of a blue state. Um, it's pretty rural from from what I'm used to, especially growing up. Uh, and I, I really do appreciate it, but yeah, it's largely the same. You know, you see some masks, but for the most part, um, people go on with their lives. Yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't really affect you much? Not really. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I mean, I'm, Well, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't have Facebook or anything. <clears throat> My wife mm-hmm. does. And so she'll, she'll send me articles or texts or whatever. But, um, you know, I mean, generally I get my impression of the world from what little media publications I listen to, like Joe Rogan. I'll listen to that, you know, somewhat frequently, maybe once a week or so. Um, but I haven't really, I mean, I'll go on Reddit and read about like crypto and stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean, my experience of it actually is, is almost completely firsthand. So like <clears throat> my dad and I went to go play golf in California a year ago. Um, and that is, that was like another planet, man. That was a completely different reality. Um, yeah. my, my sister got married in Chicago a week and a half ago. Uh, and that was the first time I'd been up in the city for probably, well, certainly before COVID, but three years probably. And it was, you know, maybe largely what you'd expect, uh, certainly nothing like California. Um, and then my parents live in Florida in the winter. So I've been down there a couple of times and that's a lot like it is here. Um, maybe a little bit more pretense, but not much more. So it's, it's interesting to see all of the different disparate ways of relating to. Yeah. And they they really are. I mean, I've been in Thailand the entire time, but it does seem like America has split into two totally different realities based on your area, but also like, the beliefs that people have about vaccines or not. And everyone's so hard on one end and yeah, it's just two different worlds. It's already become becoming two different countries. It's two different countries. Yep. That's exactly right. I think, you know, in large part, um, it's probably a rural urban thing. And so in that regard, 
it has been two different countries for a while. Um, what I think the coronavirus mitigatory measures have brought to the the surface is the fact that now there is an emblem by which you can identify someone mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> very easily and readily. Whereas before, it wasn't always easy to know who amongst you held certain beliefs. Um, and now it's plain. The raiment is on your face. Right. So, you know, I mean, I think that that is actually probably exacerbated things a little bit because all, all, all of the ways that you believe the other to be the other um, without actually experiencing the other person, you are then just projecting on this mask or non-mask wearing person. And, um, you know, I think in point of fact, it's probably more nuanced in reality than that. Um, but it's hard to escape. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of what you just said. I forget, uh, the Wittgenstein thing of language. You said language, something essentially it's, like, uh, yeah. what was it? L- language, a language game, language game. Yeah. Totally different language games. Um, yeah, news. Anyway, th- these are things that are maybe obvious to say, but news has split more than ever before into two different belief systems about what's true with science, which is supposed to be objective. So, if, I mean, uh, South Park parodied this like years ago. Like, if we split into two different sciences, it's no different than an ideological like Christian Protestant, Christian Islamic war. Like, it's just two different worlds about what reality is and. Yeah, anyway, hopefully it doesn't become a physical war. I, um, I'm i less and less hopeful of that. I mean, I think I'm, I'm so removed from the news that, you know, I don't really know what to think. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, at least around here, you know, you learned early on not to confront people over it. It's just not worth it. Like, f- further south of me, which is even more rural, I mean, people were getting stabbed over them. You know, and it just isn't worth getting stabbed. Really? But about yeah, I mean, who's stabbing who? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. But mm-hmm. this woman I worked with said that she was in a grocery store, and these two women got into a fight over the masks, and then their husbands came over, and then the husbands got into a fight, representing whatever side they were on. And she said in that conversation with her that you know there had been a stabbing near near her over them um well. and and i think i don't know how much you follow this I, I follow it only insofar as i'm um interested in what i may or may not be coerced into doing and so i'm, I'm following the osha mandate which is um in the u.s like um osha's occupational something in health association or authority or agency yeah, something whatever like it is Work, workplace safety and um you know they're gonna have uh ostensibly have a rule over vaccinations and testing and that kind of thing and um it's going to apply to employers who have more than 100 employees <clears throat> and i currently work for one so i'm following it to see but anyway i'm because of that i kind of follow the I have my finger on the pulse a little bit, but in Chicago right now, um, the police union is in um, an astonishing argument with the mayor over mandatory vaccination. And um, they're, I mean, the language that they're using is very strident. And I, you know, someone is going to have to eventually say, one of two things will happen. Either eventually we will just say, okay, you know, we, we can't continue to do this. This is getting too um, confrontational. Or uh, it's just going to keep amping up and amping up and amping up. And I think that there will be a, a burst of violence somewhere. I'm not saying it's going to be from the police, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Have you read any Korzybski? by chance no 
Uh, no. he's, the, he's the guy who invented general semantics and a lot of quotes that we use, like language creates reality and the map is not the territory come from him. Okay. Anyway, I'm, re- I'm reading one of his early books. It's, it's, you know, it's pretty dense, but um, he was saying how um, everything in society is interlocking, right? Like po- the, the, the level of advancement with politics and science and, you know, all the different social sciences and hard sciences, whatever. And that's what makes up reality. This is my interpretation. That's what makes up reality. But some of these things advance way faster than others. Like science advances at a geometric or exponential level, whereas law law um, advances at an arithmetic level. So obviously, after a generation or two, they're super far apart. And the only way that societies ever correct this imbalance, because it stretches reality, um, or at least like the laws no longer fit in with the, the lifestyle of the time, the only way that societies ever correct that is through violence. So every every so often there's a revolution, specifically when usually it's science outpaces um, politics or law. And that's, uh, yeah, and he wrote that in 1921, right after, he said, because uh, it was right after World War One. he was saying, oh, World War One was basically a correction. Um, but anyway, nowadays it uh, seems even worse. <laughs> yeah, I was actually thinking about David Foster Wallace. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think about him a lot, but um, he, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest, which right. is, it takes place Never in the finished. 90s. <laughs> no, you should, you should read know. it. It's, it's, it's good. Um, but I mean, there are so many pieces of it that are applicable and a lot of his essays are too. Uh, but one of the motifs that he had in the book and throughout many of his essays was <clears throat> on appearance, appearances. Mm-hmm. Um. And in one one short story he wrote about a woman who was going to go on Letterman. <clears throat> I don't know, in the 80s, maybe late 80s, early 90s. And she kept repeating over and over, my parents, my parents, my parents. And he intended a double or trouble entente by that term. My, her appearance on the show, her appearance, you know, how, how she appeared um, on the show. And then also like kind of a meta commentary on the concept of appearance. Um, but I think about that a lot because, you know, my, my opinion is that the masks, especially now are largely, um, an act of pretense. Um, it's an appearance it's, it's promoting or, or denying some other thing. And I think writers from the past, I mean, I'm, I'm often drawing parallels between them, but, um, I don't know what to think about all of them. I mean, it doesn't really seem to prevent anything from happening. So I sometimes wonder, you know, I mean, that does cause you to, to view life differently, I think, confronted with the fact that people can have a pretty perspicacious view, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't ultimately make much material difference in the cycles of human history yeah yeah i mean i do notice i mean the only reason why i ever wear a mask even though there's no mask mandates here i mean for some stores i have to you have to wear a mask but it's mainly because i'm a foreigner Mm -hmm. in thailand thai people all wear masks and i don't want to come off as a rude foreigner in the same way that i bow or like you know put my hands together when they do i use their language when i can i'm really just i'm I'm only wearing a mask for cultural simulation so that I'm respectful of their culture. But then I was thinking, you know, I mean, I would feel differently if I was in New York, but maybe, well, maybe I wouldn't actually, maybe I would feel so much pressure from the New York liberal culture that I would have to wear a mask for show purposes. I don't know. I, I experienced this. Um, and I, I will um, reflect on it sometimes, but I, I actually have gotten I've gone from ambivalent, largely ambivalent about politics to very, very convicted. And I won't wear a mask. I, I don't, I don't do it. Um, I avoid places where they require masks. Now I am admittedly um, in a position of some luxury because where I live, you don't have to wear one anywhere at the hospital, I guess, if you go to the hospital, but even there, I mean, people don't really wear them. Um, but in Chicago, I mean, we were in, a, in the church, and I did put one on. Um, I did it for my sister. 
you know, but, um, we all had them off. And <clears throat> one of the guys that was there, I don't know what he was doing, but he was a representative of the archdiocese and he got up at the lectern and said, you know, his spiel. Um, and then at the end he said, you know, for everyone's safety, which I chafed at a bit. And, um, he, you know, I was, but the, the air in the room completely changed, you know, because now, whereas before we were at ease, we were together, um, we were, you know, now we were subject to, um, chastening and, uh, coercion. Um, and so, you know, every, you could feel the energy in the room, in the, the chapel completely changed. Everyone just wanted to get through it. Um, you know, I just looked forward the whole time. And at the end, you know, and I was visibly not happy about this. And at the end, he came up to me and confronted me about it just to kind of twist the knife a little bit. Um, you're in Chicago now. And, you know, this is how we do things up here. Um, and I was incensed, enraged. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you did that here, you'd probably get your ass kicked. But. I, I am some, somewhat surprised and, and in some, some ways not surprised at how convicted I have become about this whole thing. Um, and I really object to pretense. I, I don't like it. I never have since I was a, a kid. I just think um, pretense is the enemy of introspection. and. I think that's dangerous. I also think personally that um, you should encourage introspection in yourself because ultimately that's all you'll have to take with you. The pretense will be burned away and whatever form your life takes after your bodily death, your pretense will have no part in it. Yeah. On conviction, I, I go back and forth because uh, I, I have the same opinion as you. And at times, especially with the example I just shared, like, I'm like, well, if I was really living by, let's say, master morality and not caring about collectivism, I just wouldn't wear the mask. And I wouldn't care about the judgment. And, and I do think about that every time I put one on. But at the same time, I feel like part of the danger, like, like if, if America goes into civil war, the winner will be the enemies of the United States, not, not anyone, neither side in the United States will win. China will take over America and that will be that. And I'm like, man, if, if, if that, I mean, it's a bit conspiracy, but if this is a play of, of enemies of the United States to divide the country and take it over, uh, we're basically playing into their hands by really digging into one side or the other. Right. I do think that at times it's kind of hard because my ego certainly wants to be like, you know, don't tell me what to do with masks or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, I think ego plays into it a lot. And that's where I'm given pause. Um, I, I also, you know, when you were saying um, in your um, Dark Night of the Soul video, mm -hmm. where, you know, there's a cost. And um, there, there is a cost. And there's actually a very real cost. Um, you know, my wife is she doesn't care about the masks or vaccines or whatever, but she does it. Um, I think partly because it's probably a little bit more natural for a woman to just kind of go along, but also because um, she's from a, a very homogenous small town and, you know, you fit in. Um, but there are, there are costs, you know, like she, she, well, I mean, there have been, I, I didn't go to church for a year. I didn't take my kids. I, I would not wear, I don't, I wouldn't wear a mask. In so I stopped going with her. Um, if we go to a, a city and she wants to go into target, I don't go in. Um, and, you know, at a certain point, you know, I am sacrificing time with my family and as a family, with my wife as a couple in order to 
do what I'm doing. Yeah, for dignity, impractical dignity. It's, and is it worth it? And how do you adjudge its worthiness? What, what are the different factors that you weigh? Um, and how much of it is my own ego? Yeah, I mean, that's not an easy thing to answer, but. Yeah, it's hard because if everyone goes, I mean, if everyone looks at that, I'd be like, oh, well, it's, I'm skipping out time with my family, um, blah, blah, blah. So they take the other route. If everyone does that, then there's no resistance against, let's say, authoritarianism or anything, which, which is what <laughs> happens, which is what's happening in some countries. Uh, Canada and Australia seems to have bent over immediately. I, um, I, I will admit, and I don't know if I'm ashamed of it or not. I, I really don't know. When I say I don't know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but I, I will admit that when I read the stories of the, the police union and the language they're using, hold the line, I'm like, fuck yes. Fuck yes. You know, I mean, I really, I mean, I feel very, very, very passionately about it, you know, and um, I don't know. I mean, I, I do agree with you to a certain extent, but I always try at least to manage my ego's you know, it can be, it can, it can cause damage. You know, if you let your ego just run rampant, um, you know, you can lose a piece of your humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I want to go back to this language game thing. Cause I'm just remembering something related. Um, uh, Christina who works for me lives in Serbia. I was asking her what the vaccine COVID stuff was going on there. And she was like, as she said, same thing as everywhere else. Like there's certain pressure if you're not vaccinated, there's certain social pressure. Um, but they, but she said something like they haven't enforced anything seriously yet. So we're still pretty liberal, right? She used the word liberal, which I thought was really interesting. Like she used the word liberal as its actual definition as an adjective, which is kind of the opposite of what the word liberal means in the West now, which has become yeah. associated with a party's ideology. And I just was like, oh, okay. I mean, she's speaking the way that the word is supposed to be used, which is freedom. Um, and I thought that was interesting because the, the word has, yeah, it just means something different now. I, I love these kinds of language tricks, puzzles, games. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the things about really, really good rap hip hop that I appreciate where um, turns of phrase or where, where they'll subvert your expectations or where they'll, they'll make a word play. And um, what I, what I, what I actually think, think about this a lot and what I like about it more than say like classic poetry is that it includes, you know, classic poetry was um, high art. And what I like about hip hop is that it, it isn't, it's not high art. It's, it's popular art. It's, it's, vulgar you know liter literally it's it's the vulgate and um it's 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 what jesus did with his parables because he was speaking in you know largely aramaic not hebrew and when you have that kind of like communal language you know that that you like when you're with an old friend and you have <clears throat> a mode of communicating that is easy and effortless you're communicating you're using other symbols than just the words right um when you use the vault the vulgate you have access to all of that that's kind of like my but that's like the easiness the, the correlation would be the vulgate to the easiness of your the conversation with your friend um how do you define then, vulgate is that just vulgate the, is like uh fine well, yeah, like popular, like high art versus popular art. V okay. Vulgate is like um, when it's basically Italian. So like mm -hmm. when Latin was the lingua franca, um, mm -hmm. the, vul the Vulgate was the dialect, basically, in the Roman okay. areas. Yeah. It's, it's Italian, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and when you have that easiness, but then subversion is introduced it causes you to think like you were expecting one thing you were expecting you, you you got lazy you got complacent in you took for granted um you became enmeshed in the symbols you became enmeshed 
in the medium of exchange and lost the meaning. And these kinds of like word games, like wordplay, turns a phrase, when they subvert your expectations, they kind of snap you out of it. It's the same, it's the same thing that a koan does. It's the same thing that, that the parables of Christ did and do. Um, and I think now I'm an unabashed admirer of Wittgenstein. Um, but I think that language is really at the heart of it. It's at the heart of it. Yeah. I mean, symbols, maybe, if you want to use symbols, mm-hmm. but language, language are our primary form of symbols. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you turned me on to Barfield uh, many years ago now. Um, and the one thing I remember from whatever number of essays I read was how words originally were just to describe objects and things you could do with objects. And then metaphor turned the, you know, I mean, all of our words are rooted in physical objects, all the nouns, rather. All of our verbs, even the abstract verbs, are rooted in physical actions. And they, using metaphor, became abstracted, abstracted, abstracted. So you have words now that, like, I don't know, justice, that you can't really, unless you're an etymologist, you can't tie to an object, but it did have a root in that. But um, people then forget, and kind of what's happening in modern culture now is these redefinition of terms of, um, yeah, and it's actually changing reality, or changing, is an attempt to change reality. A perception of reality. <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly what it is. <clears throat> I don't know if it's if it's always. Um, I don't. I don't know if people are always doing it with the understanding that that's what they're doing. But like your example of the word liberal, I think um, the, the I, I always chafe at the sort of soundbite culture, um, the Fox News and CNN kind of culture, and. What ends up happening is that you hear the same combination of symbols so often that you just repeat them and they aren't your own. They're someone else's. So you're not really, you're not really actually communicating any meaning. You're just repeating another's symbols. And when you're confronted with like the word, like liberal, I mean, you're an introspective person, so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, this is something that you noticed, but that for, that forces you to like consider, oh, what what is this word? What does it mean? How did it come to be what it is? When I'm speaking, when I speak, what am I doing? And um, I, I, I oscillate back and forth because... <clears throat> especially after having been exposed to neo-masculinity. I mean, the plain fact of the matter is that especially with women, you know, there is a, there is a game that you play. Um, But I really, in my heart, I, I, I just don't like playing the game because you aren't communicating. You're in, in some ways you're communicating differently. So when you're in a really good rapport with a woman, um, I mean, I, I've said this to you before, but, you know, you don't actually really ever have to use a pickup line because if you're in a bar or something, you just know, I mean, you, I, I can look around and I know, you, you, I just know, like I can walk up to that woman right now <clears throat> and I wouldn't really have to say anything or it wouldn't matter what I said because there's a, connection or a, i don't know what the term is these days the language is sub subverbal uh the communication rather is subverbal um actually this is making me think of uh like the assumptions that we don't even question like um like with feminism for instance uh both feminism and we can say whatever anti-feminism obviously they have uh, opposite uh opposite beliefs on the surface but they both run on this assumption that uh, a certain, I mean, I'm using this as an example, but that um, power is good, right? They both, you know, if you look at uh, the arguments on both sides, they, they both, you know, the, the goal of, you know, is um, actually my criticism of feminism is that it runs on a very masculine paradigm, very masculine values of like being a CEO is the best thing for a woman uh, over having children, for instance, right? Like that kind of thing. Um, 
what it isn't spoken are the assumed values <clears throat> of both enemies. Like they both assume the same, they're in the same framework. Is this making sense? Yes. Yeah. And actually I, I picked feminism just because you brought up women, but you know, same thing goes for like uh, super left and super right beliefs about healthcare, right? Whether private or public, but they both agree to the same value system actually, which is not the case in some countries. North Korea doesn't believe in healthcare, for instance. Like I think people forget or the people don't see the water basically uh, from the fish perspective. Yes. I, I, um, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I also think that this is another thing about um, uh, there's a, there's a science fiction, science fiction writer who wrote, a, he writes short stories and they're pretty profound. Stephen Cho. I can't remember. I'll have to think of his name, but he wrote He wrote a short story called Remem or about this technology called Remem, where, you know, you can replay your memories and he had gotten a fight with his daughter. And anyway, um, <clears throat> it flashes back. So half the story takes place in the future where you have this brain thing where you can manifest your memories. And the other half is, is in uh, Africa in, I don't know, 16th century, 15th century. And a Jesuit is teaching um, the people how to write. Um, and his point, the author's point is that, you know, we sort of vilify AI, say, um, but language is a tool. And um, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I have noticed in myself, and my suspicion is that this is probably happening broadly. Um, when people like when you know when people say you know you, you need to get down into your body, you're in your head too much. I think the fish metaphor that you're using, the way that you're relating to the world is is to the language. You're relating to the language. You're relating to all of these ideas. You're relating to the precision of the word that you're using. You're relating to um, the differences in the words, like how the Catholic Church is just obsessed with the, the right words and getting into arguments with the Greek Church over these words, what these words mean. And then the opposite is um, just experiencing life as life. You know, the words may be a part of it. You may be using them but it's the place from which you're relating. Does that make sense? Do you follow me or is this too, have I gone uh, off the rails? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, language games. <laughs> That'll be the title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. I didn't finish Mano. I, I read three-fourths of it. That was a few months ago. I forgot about it. Then I read about half of it again. Um, I'm curious what had you suggested to me? Well, um, I can tell when people, like, I, I met this guy at a job I was at before, and I think I mentioned him to you, like a Morpheus sort of figure. Yeah. And he is of the spirit. <clears throat> I don't know of a way to say it. I mean, I, there isn't really a good way to describe what I mean. But, you know, I guess maybe we had a connection or I don't know. But, um in the Minot, Socrates is arguing with this guy. <clears throat> and Socrates is sort of in trouble with the Athenian people um, because, you know, he's getting these people to consider things. You know, they don't really like that. And he's challenging quite a bit. And um, the guy that he's in an argument with is a um, is a rhetor. What's the term? Sophist. He's a sophist. So he isn't when 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 they when the sophists speak, they're doing what I was describing before. <clears throat> um, but he's doing basically what a politician does. You know, if you're on a panel and someone espouses some idea that you disagree with, you don't actually engage with the idea. You try to construct some elegant rhetoric to um, create the impression that 
you know, you do understand what they're saying and, they, uh, and this person is, is wrong. And at one point, you know, and Socrates knows this is happening and he's Socrates. So he's just setting this guy up the whole time. Um, and he just, Socrates does what Socrates does and he just keeps asking questions. So whenever the guy will say, well, what about this? Socrates will say, well, what about this? You know, he's Socratic. And um, at one point he pulls over this slave boy and he's trying to um, demonstrate a point to his conversational partner. To me now. Yeah. And um, the slave boy obviously has no education. But he uses him to demonstrate some basic principle of geometric reality. I think he has him draw square, some, some basic shape, and draw conclusions about that. Um, and it's a pretty profound, well, I mean, the whole, the whole thing is profound. The whole dialogue is profound. But it's a profound point within it because what Socrates is trying to demonstrate is that there's something within us that recognizes before, before, um, you know, you could have someone tell you, like, this is where the term education comes from, educare, to draw out. You can have someone help you. You can have someone draw out what is already present. But yeah. ultimately, you're the one who recognizes it. Yeah, I actually wrote down this quote. There's the one thing that jumped out from the dialogue. Um, Socrates says, isn't retrieving knowledge from inside yourself the same thing as remembering? Yeah. <clears throat> and this is very platonic. I mean, this is mm -hmm. Plato was the one who wrote these and this is integral to him. But the reason I brought it up to you was because there is something like recognizes like, and in my own language game, I call it the spirit. Um, the spirit recognizes the spirit. Mm. Um, I recognize it in you and I actually recognize it when, when I do recognize it. Um, I feel satisfied at ease because I'm we're, we're now below the surface. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the symbols are what they are. And the reason I brought it up to you was because I think you had mentioned that you were trying to get you know a, a realer experience with some of the people who you <clears throat> knew and um it isn't I, I was having a difficult time explaining to you what i mean when i say mm -hmm. the spirit and so i tried to you know say hey well you know this is kind of what i'm talking about in the Minot. got it okay okay yeah because the dialogue i mean this guy Minot is asking socrates the question um it can being good is being good something you can teach or people are just good and uh you know basically at least the three-fourths that i read is socrates making the guy look like an idiot <laughs> um, so i was like oh what is what exactly like, what is the point of i mean i was just curious um yeah yeah i mean from what you just said i mean the closest thing that comes to mind is when i'm writing sometimes i'll have a line that doesn't fit in the chapter or the whatever i'm writing but it just feel, and in writing, they say, kill your darlings. Like, and I, there's, you know, sometimes we, we get attached to like a cute phrase that we just want to keep in, even though it takes away from the piece. But sometimes it feels like the, the house needs to be built around this doorknob. Like this line has, I just, I just recognize that this line has to go into this part of the book. And if I have to write the whole of the rest of the chapter to, if I have to rewrite the chapter and make this line make sense as a transition, I have to do that. And, um, very often I've said no to that impulse and I've just scratched out the line and it felt shitty. And then I write a chapter very much from my head, but, but through this dark night of the soul experience, I'm like practicing, listening to that feeling of like, I don't know why, but this line has to fit. Even if it means I have to rewrite a hundred pages. Like I need to make this line fit. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, with all of this stuff, it's kind of spiritual. I don't know if I'm just uh, making myself crazy, um, but so far it's felt better <laughs> than trying to force things to fit. Yeah. I mean, that's common with an artistic endeavor. You know, you hear people, musicians and artists and um, writers <clears throat> say that they feel like 
something's channeling through them as they're writing, you know. But yeah, I mean, I do think um, I, tr- I I try to like the Dark Knight of the Soul um, or the Crucible of Marriage. I I do try to to take a step back when I can, you know, when I'm when I'm not, you know, in the middle of it. And view my life from <clears throat> the third person, maybe. And try to appreciate the process of time. Personalize it. But, um, I, you know, it's, it's not always, there isn't really a good way to express that to someone else. <clears throat> in, a lot, in a lot of cases, it is personal. Um, and I think either you follow the thread or you kind of stuff it down for a while and then you know who knows what happens later maybe you find it again but it sounds like that's what you're doing you know like when you're talking about these lines there's a there's a thread and you just kind of tug on it and see where it goes yeah you know because like one of the things that has gotten me really down periodically is how long my book has taken like i've spent a lot of time on it i'm even embarrassed to talk about it because there's people who've known me from years ago who heard me say the same thing. Um, and I've written way more pages than needed to fit in a book, but it's just not done because it, they, they don't feel right. They just aren't right. Like I wouldn't be proud of it, even though it tells the story that I meant to tell. And um, I'm coming to terms with the fact that maybe what I should have been do- doing this whole time is what we're, we're talking about, just not deciding from my head what belongs in the book. And instead, just following the thread. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's what at least the hypothesis I'm working with now. I think um, you know the more the more you follow the thread, or at least in my experience, the more I follow the thread, uh, the happier I am. The, the you know I view it, it really it, to me it really is religious or spiritual or whatever you want to call it. You know, I mean it's it's um in many ways. I mean this is it's a relationship you know you have to relate relate to it you know you can't control it uh just like a relationship um it's kind of you know you are relating to it but it's subject to its own whims and fancies comes and goes comes and goes as it pleases you know the wind blows where it will and um you know you kind of have to just calm down you know in my own my own life it's just calming down and having faith or trust and you know i mean (laughs) yeah it's hard because after the last podcast i put out and i sent that email out um he's a he's a friend he's a youtuber he's like oh i mean i'm surprised you're making all this meaning out of youtube whatever example i said like it's just a vehicle for people to know you it's like just hit a thousand subscribers like Basically, he was like, you're making a big deal out of this thing. It's a practical thing. Why'd you delete it? And um, a part of me was like, yeah, actually, yeah, he is making a good point. <laughs> like, you know, why, why was I making such a big deal about it? But, the, but on another level, yeah, it just didn't, it just spiritually didn't work. I don't know. I, I can't really explain it. It wasn't working, not, not because of the results, but because of how it made me feel. It just didn't fit. And I don't know why. I don't know why this line is the right line as far as whatever actions I've made, but it just seems, I, I feel at peace, whereas I didn't feel at peace before and I can't explain it. And that's its own, I mean, that that is its own benefit, you know? Yeah. The, the older I get, the more I realize peace is hard earned. And, you know, you, at some point, I mean, this is probably Vedic, but at some point you just decide to kind of just let some things go. And it doesn't seem like it. I think that's probably why it's hard to to have conversations with people like the YouTube guy, because from his perspective, you're not like from his perspective, letting it go would be just staying on YouTube. But it's 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 like um shearing away the layers that are covering you you know shearing yourself of 
all of this extra crap slowly but surely over the course of time. And maybe in the end, you'll find what you've been looking for the whole time. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's like going the other way, you know, whereas he's saying, well, just let it go and, and use this thing. You know, from your perspective, you're letting it go. Like you're just letting go of it. Just letting it no longer be tethered to your person. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, it's great catching up with you. Yeah. <laughs> you're Likewise, floating everyone. head in, in the dark. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we're, we're, we're not on video, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, it probably does look sort of ominous. Yeah. But I got that in my pipe. Yeah. Cool, man. Uh, well, glad to know you're doing well. Uh, things seem to be good over there. Uh, yeah. Thanks for being on. Yeah. Cool. See you, everyone. Sure.